timely place for us to be than to look at things that are still to come in light of where we are, and it transforms our life. It's been said that pride is the only disease that makes everybody sick except for the person who has it. Think about that for a moment. Maybe you've been around a proud person and you understand that. It's been said that pride is the only disease that makes everyone else sick except the one that has it. If you were to ask me, Pastor, what is the most foundational of sin? What is the the sin of all sins? I would say without hesitation or without reservation, the sin of pride. Pride is really the sin that began all other sins. It's the the sin that, that started when Satan said, I will be like the Most High God. It was pride in his own heart, a desire for more that created in him that sinful fall. It is fundamentally linked to every other sin that you and I possibly could ever commit. It, it fuels unbelief because what we're saying ultimately is I know better than God. When we're filled with pride, when we find ourselves puffed up in some way, it's an exaggerated or even a dishonest self-evaluation. We want other people to look at us in some way and, and, and respect us in some way, even though we know who we are on the inside. It's just an exaggeration. It's a distorted self-view. It's ultimately exalting ourselves above God. Pride is one of those sins where we find ourselves in a place where we focus on ourselves. And when we exalt ourselves, we always look down on others. And so as we consider this matter of pride, it elevates and exalts itself. It's arrogant, it's presumption, it's conceit, it's self-satisfaction, it's boasting, it's high-mindedness. Let me say it again. Pride is really ultimately the root sin of all other sins. It's self-worship. It's an obsession with ourselves. A young woman scheduled an appointment with a pastor, and she said, Pastor, I have a besetting sin that I'm just struggling with, and I need to deal with it in some way. And he said, okay, what is it? And so they met together, and she came to him, and she said, Pastor, every time I walk in the doors of our church, I began to look around, and I realized that I am the most beautiful of all of the ladies in all of our church family. And I'm struggling. I really, I walk in and I just look at them and, and I know that I'm the most beautiful. And she said, how can I deal with that sin? And he said, oh, Mary, that's not a sin. That's a mistake. <laughs> Humility is good for the proud. Over and over again, the Bible is filled with warnings regarding this matter. And I want you to just jot down. We don't have time to go through all of them, but the Bible deals with high-mindedness. It talks about pride in very, very pointed ways. You don't have to look very far. If we were to look in Proverbs chapter 11, verse 2, the Word of God says this, Pride leads to disgrace, but humility comes with wisdom. He says it's wise for us to be uh, hum- uh, humble and have humility. Proverbs 21.4 says this, haughty eyes and a proud heart and evil actions are all sin. A haughty spirit, a sense of of our own self-desire. In fact, if you go a little farther in the book of Proverbs, you see God's hate list. He, He lists some things and guess what's at the very top of that list? Pride. There are six things the Lord hates. No, seven that he detests. Haughty eyes is at the top of the list. Basically, some translations would say a proud look. And so pride is something that God absolutely hates. So write that down. Jot it down somewhere. God hates pride. He hates it. He does not want any of the created order to rise up in a sense of self-reliance. He desires for us to be dependent on him. 
Now, if you and I were to look at the New Testament and try to summarize all of those Old Testament teachings in one verse, I believe we could do so in James 4, 6. And it says this, God gives greater grace. And how does he do that? Because as the scripture says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. God opposes the proud. So let me say it this way. Not only does he hate pride, he opposes the proud, but he also embraces humility. God embraces humility. I want you to to see that. He humbles arrogance is the next thing I want you to see. God doesn't just oppose it. He doesn't just hate it. He deals with it. And today in our chapter of scriptures, we look at Daniel 4. We will see from the words of Nebuchadnezzar a pretty powerful thing when we see the king at the end of the chapter say, Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and glorify and honor the king of heaven. All his acts are just and true. And look at these words. This is the most powerful man in the world at one time. And Nebuchadnezzar says these words, he, speaking of God, is able to humble the proud. The fourth chapter of Daniel is all about pride and how God deals with it. This chapter is going to paint for us a a graphic picture of one who falls into this sin of pride. And in chapter four, we're going to say goodbye to an old friend. Well, it's kind of hard to call him a friend. He is a bloodthirsty and wicked tyrant. We've seen him with great hostility do some horrible things. He he had a, a knack for throwing people into lion's dens and fiery furnaces. He had a knack for just uh, saying uh, at a whim, all of these counselors should die because they've not given me the answer I want. But we're going to see the end of Nebuchadnezzar's involvement in Scripture. By way of introduction, this is one of the most unique portions of scriptures we look together at the word of God here it's a Babylonian state document this is an official deal why because Nebuchadnezzar himself is speaking and as Nebuchadnezzar speaks here it's kind of interesting it was included by Daniel himself notice in the very first verse King Nebuchadnezzar sent this message to the people of every race and every nation and language throughout the world peace and prosperity to you I want you all to know Just stop right there. He's speaking on his own behalf, and Daniel's writing it down. Nebuchadnezzar says very pointedly, this is his own personal testimony. Apart from a few verses in chapter 4 where Daniel gives interpretation, this is Nebuchadnezzar speaking. So this would be like an official White House document from the capital city of Babylon there. It's told from his perspective, and under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Daniel included this in his writing. Now, you could say in simple terms that Daniel 4 is like a gospel track because we're going to see how God deals with a man and brings him, and Nebuchadnezzar shares the story of God bringing him from where he was to where God wanted him to be. This brutal dictator is going to go through the depths, but he's going to come out on the other side. So I've entitled our message today, The the King Who Went Crazy, but we could probably say The King Who Went Crazy and Came Back because you're going to see a unique turn toward the end. Now, it's interesting to me, if you look at this testimony, Nebuchadnezzar's going to tell it in his own voice, you would think that somehow we might get the impression that he is open to spiritual things at this point. I mean, after all, he's tipped his hat toward God a couple of times. We've seen him acknowledge Daniel's ability to interpret dreams. We've seen his uh, recognition of God. But in tipping his hat, by the end of the fourth chapter, he's not just going to tip his hat to God. He's going to be on his knees. 
He's not just going to curtsy before the Lord. He's going to bow before the king. He will recognize that his pride is simply nothing more than an over-exaggerated ego and that God rules and God reigns. Now, some of you here today might have already checked out and said, well, he's speaking to leadership. He's, he's talking about God humbling leaders, maybe governmental leaders or church leaders. No, every one of us are impacted by pride. Every one of us have places in our lives where we determine that we know better than God. And so, church family, I want you just to follow along with me as we walk through this chapter, as we unpack and unfold this story together. I think we'll see uniquely some great things for all of us. In, in fact, I want you to see this. If we review, do you remember that Nebuchadnezzar had a dream? Had a dream of a statue. And he was the head of gold. Daniel told him that. And he puffed himself up over that. And Daniel said, however, soon after another kingdom will take over. And it'll be a kingdom of lesser power and influence and, and of lesser value. And we know that the Medes and the Persians took over. And in that statue, the head was gold and the arms and the chest were silver. And there were the Medes and the Persians. And then another kingdom will come. And we know the Greeks took over. And then another kingdom will come. And then we knew the Roman Empire happened. All of those things have already happened. Well, we went from chapter 2 to chapter 3, and Nebuchadnezzar decided, I know what I'll do. I'll raise up a statue of gold from head to toe, and everybody needs to bow down to it. He said, I'll show Daniel, and I'll show God. And he determined in his own heart, I'm still the most powerful man on the block. I'm the king of the hill. And he determined, I'm going to set those parameters. Nobody's going to tell me. Someone said it this way. In chapter 2, God dealt with him straightly. In chapter 3, he dealt with him sternly, but in chapter 4, he's going to deal with him severely. Let's go back to the text. If this is a, a state document, then, then the first few verses are like the preamble. Let's look together. King Nebuchadnezzar sent this message to the people of every race and every nation and language throughout the world. Peace and prosperity to you. I want you all to know about the miraculous signs and wonders the Most High God has performed for me. How great are his signs. How powerful are his wonders. His kingdom will last forever. Here is the monarch making a, a statement, a universal testimony. He said, I want the world to know what God has done for me. I mean, think about this. All that we know about him, this wicked man, but hear this testimony to every race and every tongue and every people. I have a commentary in my library by G.H. Lang and, and about Daniel. He said something interesting, and this is sort of a side note, but he said that about every 500 years, God wants to get the attention of the whole world. That God speaks. If you think about it, it started with the universal flood of Noah's day. And about 500 years later, God got the attention of the whole world through the Tower of Babel. And sometime later, we see Sodom and Gomorrah, and it's fallen, and it's destroyed, and it's judged. And, and you say, well, how is that a worldwide declaration? Well, if you were to look back at where it was located, the route it was located on, very quickly, people understood God meant business because of this destruction. The word about Sodom and Gomorrah spread to the whole world. And then about 500 years later, we see in the Exodus period, if you read in Exodus 9, God was saying very pointedly, I want the world to know that Jehovah is God. And over and over again, God is speaking through Solomon. The Bible says that the whole world came to him to inquire of his wisdom and his wealth. 
Now, I haven't traced that on forward past what Lang said, but I imagine that God's trying to get the attention of the whole world in 2020. Would you agree? Anybody here listening for God this morning? I'm like, okay, God, we, we, got, we got it. We know. We, we're looking up. But I want you to follow with me, and this is off script and off the notes for a moment. In September, we are going to be involved in a global day of prayer, and we're going to call our church to fast, and we're going to be joining in with others who are gathering at the National Mall in Washington. We will be a simulcast for an event called The Return. I believe now we need to listen to the Lord. God's gotten our attention, maybe economically, maybe physically he's gotten your attention. Maybe in some way spiritually or emotionally, he's broken us down to a place where we are all ears and we're ready to listen. And now is the time for all of us to turn to him and to listen for his voice of healing as we repent. Well, as we come back to this, God is speaking here through the most powerful man on earth at the zenith of his power. And he says, I, I, I want you to, to know what God did for me. God's about to bring this man from the height of power and success to the absolute lowest place that any man could possibly imagine. It's an unbelievably and, and intensely personal statement. He said, I want you to know what God did for me. In fact, Nebuchadnezzar saying, I want you to know how God has worked in my life. That's a good thing to do, wouldn't you agree? To testify of what God's done for you. If you really think about it, and this is probably another sermon for another day, but this wicked king at this point does what many people in this room have never done. He says, I want the whole world to know what God's done for me. The Bible says, let the redeemed of the Lord, what? Say so. And so you and me ought to do this. In fact, it's interesting. He's doing what many Christians today have never done. He does more with the light that God gives him than many people here will do. He's enthusiastic. Look at what God has done. God's given us opportunity to tell the whole world, and we need to take full advantage of that. Well, let's walk through this text together. Chapter Chapter 4, starting in verse 4 now. We want to see the dream received. The dream received. This is the actual dream that he had, starting in verse 4. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was living in my palace in comfort and prosperity. But one night I had a dream that frightened me, and I saw visions that terrified me as I lay in my bed. So I issued an order calling in all the wise men of Babylon so they could tell me what the dream meant. When the magicians and enchanters and astrologers and fortune tellers all came in, I told them the dream, but they could not tell me what it meant. Verse 8, at last, Daniel came in before me, and I told him the dream. He was named Belteshazzar after my God, and the spirit of the holy gods is in him. Verse 9, I said to Belteshazzar, chief of the magicians, I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in you and that no mystery is too great for you to solve. Now tell me what the dream means. Nebuchadnezzar is in his palace in comfort. He's not at war. He's just at a place of being in prosperity and at ease. And at the height of his prosperity, yet another dream terrifies him. It shakes him up. It's interesting to me. Someone has said it's difficult to be prosperous without being proud. And I can tell you over the course of my years in my life, I know a lot of Christians who have succeeded greatly at being holy and living out godly lives who lived in poverty. But I can tell you this, there are a whole lot of people that have been blessed with wealth, 
And it becomes a stumbling block for them trusting the Lord. Somehow it, it puffs us up. And we in America need to wake up to that, that we are wealthy compared to the, the world's standards. If half the world lives on $2 a day, then you and I need to recognize that we are blessed this morning and we have prospered this morning and we better not forget God. Well, that's where Nebuchadnezzar was. He, he does a strange thing, though, when his dream comes. He calls in the Chaldeans. You say, well, pastor, why is that strange? Well, you ought to know why it's strange. He's called these guys in over and over and over again, and they are batting zero. I mean, they haven't helped him a single time. Every time he's called them in, they scratch their heads and go, we don't know what to do with that dream. We don't know how to deal with it. But he calls them in. You would think he would say, I'm not wasting time with these guys anymore. You would think he would say, I'm done calling them. But verse 8 and 9, it comes to this place where it says, and at last Daniel came in. You would think he would have started there first. I mean, God's given him messages, but you know what the deal is. He has exhausted all human possibilities to get to the answer. And this is something I want to write down, you will write down. We often hide from the truth. We often hide from the truth. There are people in this room that are hiding from God by coming to church. Pastor, what do you mean? It's easy for us to find some sense of comfort and solace in religion and not in a relationship. And so we can come to church and feel better about ourselves. We'll pat ourselves on the back. And we'll say, you know what, I've done the right things today. I got up and I went to church, or I, I got online, and, and uh, we want to welcome those who are worshiping with us online. We're thankful for them. But, but make sure that you know this, that you're attending a service or you participating in the service does not at all in any way become a substitute for meeting with God. And he called in all of the worldly wisdom that he knew, and finally he comes to Daniel. Many times we hide from the truth. I want you to see something very quickly about Daniel that I had never seen before this week. In Old Testament terms, if you will, Daniel was a spirit-filled man. We know that the Holy Spirit didn't come and rest in and dwell people until the New Testament and Pentecost. But three different times in this chapter, in verse 8, verse 9, and 18, there's an incredible phrase that, Bel uh, that Nebuchadnezzar uses. He says, after my God and the spirit of the holy gods is in him. Nebuchadnezzar didn't know any other way to say it, but just to say, he's something different about Daniel. The, the spirit of the gods is in him. We know the spirit of the living God was in him. You know, I didn't always pastor. I, I worked my way in part through school before I surrendered to ministry. And, and I, I'll tell you, one of the most incredible experiences of my life, between my graduation from college and my starting seminary, I worked for a construction crew. I mixed mortar for some brick masons. And so that, that was a pretty interesting summer. And those guys ribbed me and picked on me. They called me preacher boy. And, you know, they, they would say a cuss word, and then they would back up from it. And they would always kind of say, oh, you better watch out, like will strike and they ridiculed me at times but can I tell you this when one of those old boys got in trouble they came looking for me in my truck because they wanted some answers King Nebuchadnezzar kept knocking on Daniel's door because he knew there was a difference there and young people let me tell you this uh, for our college students and for our high schoolers and middle schoolers people may ridicule you for your faith but they will notice something different about you if you stand strong in the Lord and so don't back up from that they came clearly before the king and could not do anything for him and he came back to Daniel time and time and time again that's not just for young people 
there are some grown-ups in this place. There are some adults in this place that need to live out their faith in the influence of the Holy Spirit of God and others around you will take note of that. And when they come to a place of need, they'll come looking you up. Well, that's what happened here. And so as they came, Daniel is now in the palace, in the presence of the king. You know, I just I think back to that. There are people that are clamoring for answers to that. I don't want to run past it. The, the, the guys that came to me, they knew that the, the, the men that they drank with and swore with and caroused with and ran around with didn't have any answers that would last their lives. Doesn't mean that we're perfect, but it means that the Spirit of God can move. Take that to heart. Daniel's in the presence of the palace. Let's pick up in verse 10. While I was lying on my bed, this is what I dreamed. I saw a large tree in the middle of the earth. The tree grew very tall and strong, reaching high into the heavens for all the world to see. It had fresh green leaves, and it was loaded with fruit for all to eat. Wild animals lived in its shade, and birds nested in its branches. All the world fed from this one tree. And then as I lay there dreaming, I saw a messenger. A watcher, it might say in your translation. A holy one coming down from heaven. The messenger shouted, cut down the tree and lop off its branches. Shake off its leaves and scatter its fruit. Chase the wild animals from its shade and the birds from its branches. But leave the stump and the roots in the ground. Bound with a band of iron and bronze. And surrounded by tender grass. And now let him be drenched with the dew of heaven and let him live with the wild animals, literally among the beasts, among the plants of the field. For the seven periods of time, let him have the mind of a wild animal instead of the mind of a human being. For this has been decreed by the messenger and it is commanded by the Holy One so that everyone may know that the Most High rules over kingdoms of this world. He gives them to anyone he chooses even the lowliest of people. Belteshazzar, that was the dream that I, King Nebuchadnezzar, had. Now, tell me what it means, for none of these wise men of my kingdom can do so, but you can tell me. Wow, what a dream. So imagine it with me, just recap. He dreamed of a tree, and it was in the center of the earth, and it was so big that it filled the earth. All of the birds of the whole world were nested in its branches. All of the animals of the earth were underneath its shade. This tree was so big that all of the people of all of the earth ate from its fruit. It is a colossal thing. And all of a sudden, an angel shows up, a messenger, a holy one, and shouts, declaring, cut it down and shake out the fruit and cut off the branches, lop them off. And here in this dream, this messenger comes and gives this bold decree on behalf of God. He says, this is from the Holy One. This is from heaven. An angel comes out of heaven and ultimately says, the tree will cut down and everything will scatter. Look at verse 15. I want you to see there's a very strategic change of pronouns. You may have picked up on it. But leave the stump and the roots in the ground. Bound it with a band of iron and bronze that surround by tender grass. And now let, what does it say? Say it again. Hint, you mean trees or hymns? Isn't that interesting? He's saying there's this tree and now let him, watch with me, let him over and over again, let him be drenched with the dew of heaven and let him live among the beast. Let him. Why does it say that? Because it's talking about not a tree but a person. 
We know that because Daniel's about to tell that, but I thought that was fascinating that you would read it. And it says in verse 16, for a period of time, actually for seven periods of time. Now Daniel, over and over again, will talk about periods of sevens. And we know that in the the New Testament. We see it in the book of Revelation. In fact, if you want to kind of get a picture of that, in the book of Revelation, it says that something's going to happen for a time and two times and for half a time. Well, if those time are years, then how long is the tribulation period? We know it's seven years. What will be half of that? For time, that's one. And two times, that's three. And half a time, so three and a half years. So Daniel's saying here for a period of seven times. It's seven years. Interesting that we see this. Seven years are going to go by, and that is the dream. Y'all ready to just close our Bibles and go home, or do you want to know what it means? Well, I'm curious because Nebuchadnezzar was too. So what does this dream mean? We've looked at this dream received. Now let's look at the dream revealed. Starting in verse 19, the dream revealed. Look at verse 19. Upon hearing this, Daniel, known as Belteshazzar, that's his Babylonian name, was overcome for a time. Frightened by the meaning of the dream. Look at that perplexed or overcome. Daniel wasn't scratching his head because he didn't know what he meant. Daniel was hurting because he did. Daniel has been with with Nebuchadnezzar for 30 years now. And and as much wickedness has been enacted upon Daniel, I mean, he was kidnapped from his home and he was made a eunuch and he was brought into this brainwashing. He loved Nebuchadnezzar. He, He was loyal to him. That shows a lot about Daniel's heart. And Daniel was bothered by this message of truth. Why? Because he cared for him. Look at what it says. Keep going. Then the king said to him, Belteshazzar, don't be alarmed by the dream and what it means. Belteshazzar replied, look at this. I wish the events foreshadowed in this dream would happen to your enemies, my lord, and not to you. He says, I wish this was about somebody else, Nebuchadnezzar, but this is for you. You got to see it. He knows that God is about to do something drastic to his friend, Nebuchadnezzar. What a great pattern for us. Church family, listen. What a great pattern for us. If we've got to share hard truth with people, let's do it with compassion in our hearts. Speaking the truth with love. You don't have to tell people they're going to hell with glee in your eye. You need to do it with tears in your eyes. And you need to pray and say, oh, you don't have to go to hell. You don't have to face the wrath of God. You can turn today. And here, Daniel gives such a beautiful pattern. He says, oh, I wish this would happen to somebody else. But he knew. Years ago in London, there was a huge social gathering, and a man named Cesar Milan, he was a preacher, was invited, he was an evangelist, and he was invited there, and a young lady came, and she played, and she sang, and she did so beautifully. It was an amazing, rousing performance, and everybody stood to their feet, and they cheered for her. And off stage, he had the opportunity to meet this young performer, and he said to her these words, I'll read them so I don't leave any out. He says, young lady... When you were singing, I sat there and wept, and I thought how tremendously the cause of Christ would be built up if you would dedicate yourself and your talents to the Lord. Well, she was offended by that at some level, and he added, he went on, he said, but you need to know this, you are as much a sinner as the worst drunkard in the street or any harlot on Scarlet Street. But I'm here to tell you that the blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son, will cleanse you from all sin if you will but come to Him. And she stopped in her tracks. And she huffed at him and she stormed off, stomping her feet. She was angered. How dare this redneck 
backwards, unsophisticated preacher that's brought into the very beauty of our society, our level. How dare he call me a sinner? But she couldn't sleep. For three nights, she wrestled with what he said. Jesus can save you. Jesus' blood can cleanse you. And she finally came to the place under such deep conviction. By the way, he added this. He said, I pray no offense. I mean no offense. I pray God's spirit will convict you. And then she couldn't sleep. And two days later, she took out a pen and a paper at three in the morning and she wrote down these words. Her name is Charlotte Elliott. And she said, just as I am without one plea, but that thy blood was shed for me, and that thou bidst me come to thee. And she sat her pencil down, and she held her hands heavenward and said, O Lamb of God, I come. Charlotte Elliott was saved because he preached the judgment of God with a broken heart. Someone spoke the truth in love. Verse 20. The tree you saw was growing very tall and strong, reaching into the high heavens for all the world to see. It had fresh green leaves. It was loaded with fruit to eat. Wild animals lived in its shade. Birds nested in its branches. And look at verse 22. This is like Nathan to David. He said, you, O king, you, majesty, that tree, it's you. It's you. For you have grown strong and great, and your greatness reaches up to heaven, and you rule to the ends of the earth. And then you saw a messenger, a holy one. Here's this angel coming down out of heaven saying, cut down the tree and destroy it. But leave the stump and the roots. And he goes on and he tells more of it. And look at verse 25 and following. You will be driven from human society. Verse, excuse me, 24, it it sets it up. He says, this is what the dream means. Your majesty and what the most high has declared, these things will happen to you. And he says, you'll be driven from human society. You'll live in the fields with the wild animals. You'll eat grass like less miles. I mean, like a cow. Sorry. Some of you sports fans will appreciate that. He's going to eat grass out in the fields. He's going to find himself utterly insane. He's going to, somebody said to me this morning, I don't know if they had marbles back then or not, but Nebuchadnezzar lost his. He goes crazy. And watch this. It's, It's incredible. He says, seven periods of time will pass while you live this way until you learn that the Most High rules over the kingdoms of the world and gives them to anyone he chooses. But the stump and the roots of the tree will be left in the ground. And that means that you're going to receive your kingdom back. That means that when you learn that heaven rules, King Nebuchadnezzar, please accept my advice. Stop sinning. Do what is right. Break from your wicked past. Be merciful to the poor, and perhaps you will continue to prosper. Our time together is is fleeting, but I want you to see this. God gives mercy and grace even in a time of warning. God gives grace and mercy. Fill that in. Why? Because we see God's giving him time to repent before all these things happen. In fact, there's several evidences. God sent an angel to warn him. God always warns us before he judges us. Don't you think for one minute that you're going to stand before God and go, I didn't know. You have heard the gospel from this pulpit and from radio stations and from friends and from Sunday school classes, and you are among the blessed to have heard, but you better be doing something with it. God always warns before judgment. God gives him a grace period. He says a whole year to turn it around. Daniel says stop sinning. 
God gives him the way of repentance. He said, these are the things you need to do. He tells him about the way he treats the poor and how he has lived in the past. He gives him a limited time of judgment. He says, it's only going to last for a time, and there is hope. And God does that for us, and he, he promises restoration with repentance. God's dealing with some of you today. I, I can't say this more plainly. Repent today. Stop sinning today. Maybe God has got your attention. Maybe COVID and, and all of the other things that are going on in the world are like a messenger sent from God, and God has your attention. And today he's saying, you can turn to me. You can trust me and find salvation. You can find grace and mercy. The gospel can be applied to your hearts. Nebuchadnezzar refuses. He hardened his heart. He poked out his chest. In fact, I want you to think about this with me. We've not, we've not talked over these last several weeks about Babylon very much. Babylon itself, the city, not the nation, the, the city was, was walled, and it was walled with walls that were almost 400 feet high. They said they were 387 feet high and roughly 87 feet thick. Each of the four sides of that quadrangle were 15 miles long around the city. They could race chariots three wide all the way around the top of those walls. The Euphrates River flowed right through the middle of it. There were about 1.2 million people living in the city. It had all of the culture of the best of the best. We know about the hanging gardens that Nebuchadnezzar built for his wife as a present. One of the wonders of the world. We know about all of the magnificent terrace upon terrace that led up to the Temple of Baal. A central altar with gardens and palm groves and orchards and aqueducts and forts. Pastor, why are you sharing all that? It was a magnificent place. But at the end of this 12 months, we see Nebuchadnezzar marching around, proud and arrogant. We see him strutting around the city, and I almost see it as advisors behind him with scrolls in hand, ready to write down anything he says. And he's saying, look at all this. I did this. I just envision him in my mind going to the highest pinnacle of that city and, and saying, this is my palace, my kingdom, my city, my power. All of this I have done. Look at verse 30, and you don't have to take my word for it. As he looked out across the city, he said, look at this great city of Babylon. By my own power, I have built this city as my royal residence to display what? my majestic splendor he's saying look at me look at all that I've done it's mine and almost in the twinkling of an eye like a lightning bolt from heaven boom his mind snapped and he went utterly crazy in a moment's time he is boasting before God and it's like God said no 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 I will not tolerate that activity. Look at verse 31. While these words were still in his mouth, a voice called down from heaven, O King Nebuchadnezzar, this message is for you. You are no longer ruler of your kingdom. God said from heaven, your kingdom's over. God, sitting on the throne of heaven, speaks to this king who is boasting of himself, and that king looks much, much more like the, the specks of, of sand along the Euphrates than he does a mighty king filling the whole earth. God took it all away. One minute he's thriving and handsome. He's the executive king of the whole world. He's sharp-eyed and clear-minded and on top of the world. And in a moment's time, he's reduced to an animal. He's struck with madness, with insanity. In fact, 
this, this insanity that beset him, some have called it this malfunction called lycanthropy. And it's from lo, uh, locos, which means wolf, and anthropoid, man. Literally, young people, he, he was a wolf man. And the Bible says he began to look like that. He began to take on the, the characteristics of the animal that he thought he was. Look at verse 33. That same hour, the judgment was fulfilled, and Nebuchadnezzar was driven from man, from human society. He ate grass like a cow. He was drenched with the dew from heaven. He lived this way until his hair was as long as eagle's feathers and his nails were like bird claws. When Nebuchadnezzar said, look at me, God said, okay, I'm looking, and he kept his promise and he judged him. You need to know this. Write it down. God won't share his glory. Amen? And why should he? He is the creator of all things. We're created beings. God is worthy of all of our praise and glory and honor and laud, everything that we could give to him. He is majestic and eternal and powerful, and he is our redeemer. And he's seated on his throne, and nothing has caught him off guard. He's not wringing his hands, and he's not using any kind of anti-microbial uh, uh, hand sanitizer to, to clean his holy hands. No, God is perfectly pure, and he is untouched by all that is human. He is is God. Amen. Is he God in your mind, in your heart, and in your life? It's interesting to me that there was a band of iron left around the stump of the tree. In the dream, the tree had a stump, and the stump was left. And he said, you will restore. But imagine this. It's, it's nothing more than a, an, an iron gate that's around this animal out in the field. Imagine with me, I mean, if there's any way we can get our minds around this. Imagine going to the White House. Any president, it doesn't have to be the current president, but any of our presidents of our history that have absolutely gone insane and they caged them on the front lawn of the White House and you go there to see this magnificent display of power, our nation's capital, and you see the leader eating grass and caged. All of the world came by to see Nebuchadnezzar, this once mighty king. What a fearful thing it is to be arrogant in the presence of God. I didn't put that in your notes, but that's worth repeating. What a fearful thing to be arrogant in the presence of God. We see this great monarch reduced to an animal. That's not the end of the story. I want us to move a little further. Verse 34, and we're going to, to wrap this up. After this time had passed, I, Nebuchadnezzar, looked up to heaven. Can I just stop right there? This is a silly thing, but I found it in one commentator's notes, and I had to look it up. I did some deep theological research. I went to Google. Did you know that a cow can't look up? The way that a cow's eyes are are situated on its head. They can turn sideways and look up, but they can't directly look up. And here it says that he who is eating like an ox or like a cow, eating grass from the ground, looked up. We know there's been a change. I just thought that was cool. I looked up to heaven. My sanity returned, and I praised and worshiped the Most High, and I honored the one who lives forever. His rule is everlasting, and his kingdom is eternal. All the people of the earth are nothing compared to him. He does as he pleases among the angels of heaven and among the people of earth. No one can stop him or say to him, what do you mean by doing these things? When my sanity returned to me, so did my honor and my glory and my kingdom. My advisors and nobles sought me out. And I was restored as head of my kingdom. 
with even greater honor than I had before. And look at verse 37. We started here earlier. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and glorify and honor the king of heaven. All his acts are just and true, and he is able to humble the proud. Let me ask you a question. Did he get the message? (laughs) There are times that I have walked away from this pulpit and said, I wonder if anybody got that. Nebuchadnezzar left no doubt. Again, he's giving a personal testimony. This is what I went through, and seven years later, I came out on the other side, and here's what I know. God reigns. God rules. I'm in charge of nothing. And you and I need to have today an appropriate sense of smallness. We need to know that God is in control. God is in charge, and we'll trust him all the more. And when we do, he'll get glory and honor. And here, it was restored to him. It's amazing to me. I don't know who ran the kingdom. Some have speculated that for these seven years, Daniel was now in charge. He was the wisest of all of the land, more than likely. And no foreign enemy attacked. God was seeing to that. Pride gets to everybody. Let's just make quick application. Again, some of you say, well, I'm not a president, a king, a Sunday school teacher. I'm not a leader at church. I'm not a leader at work. I'm not a leader in my home. Pride gets everybody. All of us need to apply this. Can I tell you this, that pride brings problems? (laughs) You may want to jot that down somewhere. Pride always brings problems. I don't care if it's in church or in homes or in marriages or in schools. Pride goes before a fall and before destruction. Some of us need to work on this. You may think that because God hasn't dealt with you yet, God's not going to deal with you. Well, let me give you a verse of Scripture. Jot this down. Ecclesiastes 8.11 says, When a crime is not punished quickly, people feel it is safe to do wrong. Just because God doesn't pay on demand immediately doesn't mean that God doesn't see. He sees everything. He knows everything. The poet said it well. Listen to these words. Though the mills of God grind slowly, and they grind exceedingly small, though with patience he stands waiting, and with exactness grinds he all. God's watching over all things. God sees your heart. He knows what's in your heart. God stops us from building our kingdom so that we'll build his. That's in your notes. Fill it in. God stops us from building our own kingdoms so that we'll build his. And some of you need to get off that throne today and let Jesus Christ occupy the central place in your heart and in your life. You know, if Nebuchadnezzar had just listened to the warnings of chapter 2 and 3, we wouldn't even have chapter 4. And you have to wonder, maybe you're saying, are are we just all pawns in some game? No. But people have tried this over and over again. The Mussolinis and the Hitlers and the Stalins and the Bin Ladens over and over again. People have tried to rise up to their own level of power. And it does not have to be on a global scale. It may just be in your heart. And you say, you know what? I know better than God. I don't want to do what God wants me to do. I want to do what I want to do. Rebellion and high treason against the king of kings does not have to be an international affair. It's a universal affair, and it may even happen unseen to any other eye, but God sees it. 
And there may be people here today that are living in that kind of rebellion. And if he can take a man like Nebuchadnezzar and bring him down, then he can rule over every other leader and he can rule over your hearts. We leave the fourth chapter of Daniel with a solemn reminder, God reigns. Amen? Now just in speculation, I like to think that I'll see that old king one day in heaven. I mean, this is a testimony of a man who gives great, great faith. God is God. He is in control. I point toward him. That's more than a lot of people I know that claim the name of Christ have mentioned. He gives testimony. I'm going to see him in heaven one day. I imagine he's gotten his nails trimmed. I imagine he's gotten a haircut, but I I look forward to talking to Nebuchadnezzar. I look forward to, to meeting him and sitting down with him and Daniel and talking about how God worked in his life. This is the king's final message to the world. Those who walk in pride, God is able to humble. Two questions for you, and I put them in your notes because I want you to take them home. What will it take to get you and me to a place where we're willing to bow down in God's power? And secondly, what will it take to bring us to the place where we're freely giving him glory and honor that he deserves? May God take the message of judgment and restoration of a king who went crazy and came back and establish in our hearts a hunger and a desire to bow to Jesus Christ who reigns and rules forever today. Let's pray. Father, thank you for our time, thank you for this day, and thank you for your word. Take it and apply it to each and every heart. In Jesus' name, amen. Listen, before we leave today, it was mentioned in the announcements that we are having a very quick meeting for our pray and go emphasis. And we would love for you to be a part of it. It's going to be back in the fellowship hall. Swing by very quickly. We're only going to take a few minutes to talk through that. If today the need of your life is to make some spiritual decision, we've talked about some weighty things. We have people that we call encouragers. They're simply friends of of yours. They love you, and they have volunteered their time to be able to take God's Word and share with you how to reconnect with God, how to have a relationship with Him. They'll pray with you. They're just prayer partners. And if you'd like to pray with them, just linger for a moment after people kind of scatter out of the way. They'll be uh, stationed here at the front, and they would love to pray with you if that's the need of your life. Or maybe you want to join with our church. They can help you with that too. Any spiritual decisions that you have today, they can help. And then in just a moment, we'll make our way back to the fellowship hall, and uh, we'll talk pray and go. There are 50,000 homes in the Pine Belt, and over the next five years, we're going to prayer walk all of them. We're going to watch God do what God alone can do. We're going to ratchet up the heat on our prayer emphasis here as a church over the coming months like never before. We're going to involve ourselves in some solemn gatherings, some solemn assemblies. We're going to join in globally with Christians who are praying 40 days before the election. It's on September the 26th. We'll be praying earnestly for God to move in our nation and to heal our land and forgive our sin. That's our place that we can surrender to Him. What will it take? For him to get your attention, you're dismissed.